Evening all. Um, welcome. Nice to see such a large um, uh, group this evening. There'll be plenty of opportunities for everyone to have their say for questions. We've got pre-submitted questions by all manner of social media, and um, we'll also be able to have a, a general conversation among ourselves as well. Um, I'm going to start by asking uh, each speaker just to say a few words so that we know where they're coming from, uh, as it were, and, um, and then um, we'll, we'll take it from there. If I can briefly introduce people, um, uh, Anne Applebaum, who is, uh, as you can see, is second to my left here, is an author and Pulitzer Prize winner um, who's taken up the post, I didn't know this, a Philip Roman Chair in History and International Affairs at the school, 20. Uh, 12-13. Uh, she's Director of Political Studies at the Legatum Institute in London. Um, Craig Calhoun, you know, Director of the LSE, previously a University Professor at New York University. In case you don't know, he's sitting on the left of, uh, of Anne there. Michael Fox, Founding Director of LSE Ideas, uh, well-known speaker on global affairs, lectured all over the world, um, really, um, particularly on the rise of Asia, whether or not the world is in the midst of a major power shift. And... Um, Gideon Rackman, on the far left, though uh, not necessarily in every respect, uh, is Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent for The Economist for the Financial Times. Um, he spent an awful long time at The Economist, though, including spells in Brussels, Washington, and Bangkok. Uh, and he has a particular interest in American foreign policy, also, though, in the European Union and globalization and um, football, Gideon, as, as well as reasonable That's to say. That's a fairly common interest. Possible might not um, come up tonight. Um, uh, I'm Justin Webb. I present the Today program on Radio 4. We ask difficult questions of our bosses. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we used to ask them of other people as well. We've rather given up that. Uh, it's much easier <laughs> just to wheel them up from the top floor. Um, more relevantly for this evening, I spent eight years as the BBC's, what it calls its, its, its um, North America editor. You see, it's such a difficult title. I actually forgot what it was for a minute. Uh, North America editor. So I, I was a, a foreign correspondent based in Washington, and I covered, among other things, the um, election of Barack uh, Obama. And just one word about that to get us going before I hand over to people here. It's very striking to me that he's back because... Um, uh, He's got as tough a job now, uh, it seems, as he had right back at the beginning. And um, lots of you who are American, who know America well, will know that the one thing about American newspapers is they are fantastically pedantic. Um, they have ludicrously long headlines that go on and on and on and on and on. And the day after Obama was elected, the headlines in all the main American papers, things said, uh, Barack Obama is elected president you know, nation makes big change, etc., etc., etc. But one newspaper, I thought then, and I still think now, just about got it right. And that was the satirical paper, which lots of you will have come across, called The Onion, kind of equivalent of Private Eye. And The Onion's headline was, Black Man Given Nation's Worst Job. <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, we, we are going to talk a bit about the job that he has got, um, but also much more widely about America's position in the world and how that works out both in the next four years and I think actually also judging by the intellectual caliber of our um, uh, uh, um, panel they'll be able to look a bit further ahead as well than, the, um, than just the election. So um, let's start uh, please with Anne Applebaum and I'm happy for you either to come here Anne, or, or if you want to you can stay there and I'll simply stand. Um, I'm being encouraged by my fellow panelists to stay here yes. so that then they don't Good have plan. to get up Good either. Yeah. <laughs> it's because we like you, Anne. Thank you. It's cosy. It's Thank cozy. you. 
Um, well, thank you for that introduction, Justin. Um, I'm very pleased as a member of the pedantic American press to be allowed to <laughs> speak first, and all you clever Brits can follow up uh, later on. Um, I, I'm going to say really a few words about the election. I think some of my colleagues are going to talk more broadly about foreign policy. But I, I really feel that the election coverage has not quite captured everything that was interesting about this, um, about this election season. Um, to me, the problem with this election was encapsulated by a phrase that, uh, bra that uh, Bill Clinton once came up with, which was, it's the economy, stupid. Um, and I think the really interesting thing about this election was that it wasn't the economy entirely. Um, people, one of the things that this election illustrated is that people don't vote entirely on economics. Um, and you could see that not just in the presidential elections, you could see it in the Senate elections when uh, Republican candidates in states which had been voting Republican for, for in some cases, generations, uh, lost because of extreme positions on social issues or positions that were understood as extreme by most of their voters. Uh, you could see it in the referendums across the country approving gay marriage and um, approving marijuana. Um, legalization of marijuana, although that's a complicated issue because while it is now legal in, I think, Colorado, it's still illegal on a federal level. So how they're going to work that out in Colorado, I don't know yet. Um, uh, it, it, what was really striking to me about this campaign were the two conventions, um, the Democratic, and looking really neutrally, um, whether, whether you're, whichever, uh, uh, whichever political views you have, the interesting thing about the Republican convention is there was only one subject. The only subject was the economy, and Romney's, the argument that he made over and over again and others made was the economy, Barack Obama's bad at handling the economy, I'm more competent, I'll fix it. Um, he left out social issues, he left out foreign policy, as my colleagues are going to note. Um, he didn't have any previous Republican presidents speak. Uh, the, the Democratic Convention, by contrast, was holistic. They talked about foreign policy, they talked about um, social issues, um, and that, you know, that, 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 that in some, was in some ways the difference between the two parties. Um, the other point I'm going to make is that, although you've all read everything about the demographics of this election, which were very interesting, um, it's my view that this was not, you have to be careful with those statistics because this wasn't just about demographic change. It's also, there has been an attitudinal change um, in the United States. Um, attitudes, there are shifting attitudes to the state and to taxes. I mean, the, the most, um, it, it's very, you know, health care now often takes a bigger chunk out of people's paychecks than taxes. So healthcare, the, I, I don't think the Republicans had, while they're so focused on taxes and tax cuts, had, had noticed that um, for many people this is a bigger problem. Um, the other shift that's related to the demographics is that some of the newer immigrant groups, this was very well written about a couple of days ago, into America, are extremely industrious and very hardworking and have been very successful, but don't have necessarily a negative attitude to the state. And the best example of this is Asians in America, who are huge users of the public education system and are very invested in it and care a lot about it being well-funded and spend a lot of money on extracurricular outside of school education because they feel it's inadequate. So this is a group of people who could very well be Republican voters in many other ways who, who are extremely concerned about that. Um, and then I would also urge you not to forget accidental factors. And, you know, Romney was the wrong man for this election. He was the wrong symbol. Um, in a year when we're all sick of bankers, he was a plutocrat. Um, one of the things that always strikes me whenever um, he was asked anything about the middle class, um, he would start talking about um, 
uh, you know, tax cuts for unearned income or something. You know, he, whenever people said the word middle class, he interpreted that as sort of the working rich. Um, whereas, and, and Obama often, when he was asked about the middle class, he would sound, he would respond with a comment about um, the working poor. So, um, and I, fi finally, I would say this, the strangest thing to me, as somebody who um, has been at times very happy on the political right um, and is not so happy anymore, is that the Republicans had solutions to almost all of their electoral problems in their own party history. You know, the one really great really interesting and really comprehensive immigration reform bill that has been, that has been written um, in the American Senate in the last decade was written by John McCain. It was the McCain-Kennedy uh, Immigration Reform Act. And although Kennedy's name was on it, it was absolutely McCain's bill. His people wrote it. Um, it would have passed, except that it was trashed by the rest of the Republican Party. Uh, the most successful state health care reform is Mitt Romney's health care reform in Massachusetts. So, you know, many of the issues that, that, were, that the Republicans seemed unable to grapple with in this election, you know, they have in their own party's history, they had solutions to them, and it's really just uh, very tragic uh, that they were unable to use them, unable to find language um, to reach a, a, a broader constituency. Thank you very much. Um, Mitt Romney actually owes me money um, <laughs> since you bring him up. Uh, I think I'm probably unique in this room in that. Well, possibly not, actually, but I, I bought him a sandwich once at the um, <laughs> Iowa Republican Ladies' Convention in 2007. And the reason I, reason I bring that up is quite interesting. I knew immediately that he was going to be a rotten campaigner because he got his wallet out. We were in the queue. And, um, and of course, there's only kind of $100 bills in it. So <laughs> there's an embarrassment. I then pay for the sandwich I, uh, for him and Anne and me. Uh, and um, uh, we sit down, we have a perfectly pleasant conversation. It reminded me of, of, of Bush Sr. in that moment in the 92 campaign where he's taken to a supermarket by his people and he's brought up and down the aisles and it's all going rather well. Nice pictures, man of the people. He gets to the checkout and he doesn't know what to do. <laughs> he just stands there. He's never been to a supermarket before in his life. And you could see that with Romney there were going to be similar difficulties. All that was way back before his... his first attempt. Um, anyway, thank you very much for, Anne, let, for that. And let's turn now to um, Professor Calhoun because I'm, I'm, I'm not really quite sure. We're going in an order that's going to end with a kind of Gideon taking us into the wider world, I guess. So that's, that sort of makes sense. And you're going to concentrate as well, I think, on, um, on what actually happened in, in the States. Okay, thanks. Um, I will take this liberty as a recent expatriate to comment on what's going to happen in the States. The first thing I'd say that's interesting here is the extent to which the pollsters, and particularly some pollsters, got it completely right. Uh, Nate Silver, uh, one of the leading sort of stars, almost the rock star of the pollster world, was dead on, um, not just in the presidential election and not just electoral college, popular vote, all 50 states, Senate elections, really a remarkable um, uh, account, I would add Bob Worcester right here in this room was um, pretty much dead on, sort of running neck and neck with um, Nate Sulfur in this. And what this suggests in part is that there are um, pretty consistent factors. This wasn't just Hurricane Sandy. This wasn't just last-minute things. That, that um, the predictions, which had been remarkably stable for um, the better part of a year, were pretty sound, and so they're pretty strong underlying factors. And as we know, um, the, the bulk of the electorate has its minds made up way before the elections. 
um, and a very large part of don't knows don't vote. And so the amount of leeway late in the election is small. I think that was significant. It was significant that Democrats turned out. One of the discussions we had the week before the election here involved um, someone predicting, well, Democrats really wouldn't turn out. And it reflected an interesting bit of Republican ideology about those people who won't try very hard. Right? The, the people with shotguns in the back of their trucks, they would get out to the polls even if it was raining or no matter what. But those lazy, suburban, largely ethnically colored um, Democrats wouldn't manage to turn out the vote, which didn't turn out to be right. right? Um, the uh, Democrats managed to produce some renewal of their 2008 excitement, more than I would have predicted. I think the Democrats had seemed... Um, for much of the Obama presidency, sort of disappointed and mildly depressed. And um, there was more success in generating excitement than I expected at the time of the election. But I think a lot of this was relief. I think um, this was um, partly people who had been excited in 2008 wanting to recover it, but it was um, also people who were just very worried about what it would mean if you had a Romney-Ryan success and um, breathing a sigh of relief. Anxiety and resentment were really powerful. Fear was really powerful in this election, shaped a lot of it. Hurricane Sandy mattered, um, and it produced interesting sort of dramatic moments. It helped, it shaped the return of climate change at the very end of the election, which has not been an issue in which the Obama administration has made any significant progress, but nonetheless um, shaped the Bloomberg endorsement was interesting. I think, you know, the boss mattered. I mean, it's the Bruce Springsteen phone call to Governor Christie. There were these sort of wonderful little moments. But really more interesting is, is the disillusionment at that point. That, as major a figure and as strong a Romney backer throughout the election as Christie, could suddenly go quiet. He didn't produce an endorsement in the same way, but he just disappeared as a vocal endorsement. He was thinking about 2016. Lots of people were thinking <laughs> about 2016. Exactly right. And lots of people, including Christie, were writing off the Romney campaign at that point and saying, it's not worth tarring myself with that brush at this point. It's a lost cause. So um, that was was significant. There were a variety of other issues worth noting, and Anne's noted some of them. The gender gap in the election was real and significant and just builds on an emerging long-term gender gap um, that, you know, you know um, had the vote been among um, women only, um, it would have been a 13-point margin in the popular vote. That's a pretty striking um, difference, right? Conversely, had it been among men only, Romney would have won. Um, and so you have a pretty striking um, gender difference that is an issue for the country and an issue to figure out and interpret. There's lots more about red states and blue states, which is certainly a factor in a regional difference, but there's also a cutting across it, the big gender difference. The failure of Republicans to seize a majority that was available, I completely agree with Anne, not only Asians, but large parts of the Latino community were available. If there had been a, a Kevin Phillips to write a new version of the coming Republican majority um, in uh, the last say 10 or 15 years ago, that majority would have been anchored by a Republican Party that could change its policies and some of its rhetorical pitches to embrace um, Latino and Asian voters 
with a strong sort of emphasis on family, on work, on economic advancement, and they voluntarily sacrificed that to a certain kind of culture wars issue, um, immigration politics, a politics of resentment catering to parts of the party's far right, not even all of its far right, I think. Um, and that's now devastating. So a large part of the story that we have to look at is the question of Republicans in crisis around this and what sort of Republican Party emerges. What's been proven is that appealing to the old male and white isn't any longer a successful election strategy. You have to appeal to some people, at least, who are not old male and white. Um, and that's a challenge because the Republican Party has been very committed to a fraction of the party that wants to keep an older appeal, an older pitch for the voters tied to a different kind of, of um, populism. And I both read the David Brooks article. Obviously, that is one kind of pitch on it. That's not only David Brooks who've recognized and been very frustrated with this. You could see throughout the campaign David Brooks, a center-right commentator in the New York Times, enormously frustrated with Romney, angry for 10 months. For somebody who's like, I would like to vote for a somewhat conservative candidate. And somewhat conservative is not an option here. <clears throat> Only um, a kind of problematic and ultimately unsuccessful reactionary was made available as an option. The, um, now, this, none of this means that we know where the Republican Party is going to go. Is it going to go in a more libertarian direction? Is it, does it have a way to keep parts of who that have been the Tea Party vote in the party? Um, is it going to go more towards Wall Street? Is there a new kind of coalition emerging? None of this also means that Democrats have clear sailing or any very clear new vision. There is no big new vision uniting the various parts of the Democratic coalition. There is a very strong view of not wanting to vote for right-wing Republican candidates, but there's not a strong collective vision here, and that will be a big 2016 issue. For all the vilification of Obama as somebody who wanted to transfer money to the undeserving poor, there has been no major um, policy on inequality, no major net redistribution. There's not that. There's health care. There are largely sort of technocratic gains. Um, we have the big questions of what will be done. Will deadlock continue? Will it be possible to get things done in the second term? There are you know, very faint encouraging signs. I wouldn't bank heavily on it. Um, I'm not sure either party can address issues like the way that inequality and some of the um, repercussions of the last 40 years economics play out in the country. Um, before closing, I would just note, though, there are some interesting surprises in this. To me, one of the most interesting surprises is the success of Proposition 30 in California, um, a bill to increase taxes to pay for higher education right, by a, a you know, complex formula. Now, it's just a five-year um, window of opportunity, a very short temporary reprieve for a university system that's been suffering cuts. But it's very unusual. It's the first vote to reverse decades of cutting taxes as the only major policy that was getting through in the state and to begin a process of trying to build institutions rather than only de-institutionalize the country. And I think that that's um, an exciting, interesting, but small outcome of the election. Thank you very much. One of the questions that we've had um, uh, submitted, actually, on the social networks is, where are all the white men going to go? Uh, <laughs> Mexico would be the obvious answer, I suppose, but there may be com complications uh, there. Uh, Michael Cox. Thank you, Justin. i pick up a point uh, made by Anne at the very beginning. That everybody before the election said it would be about the economy stupid. And I think to some degree it was stupid, uh, and the economy did play a big role. But I think as Anne was suggesting, 
There were so many more other domestic factors that played into this and in the end played to, to Obama's strengths and to the weaknesses of Romney. Uh, race, ethnicity was clearly a major factor in the outcome of this particular election. Uh, gender was clearly a major factor. Sexuality was also a, an important factor. If 5% of people in the United States today now say they're gay, if one takes that as a kind of guiding figure, over 80% of gay people voted Obama in this particular election. That is not insignificant, certainly in terms of money as well. Immigration played a key role directly and indirectly in this particular election. It was a wonderful interview with an Hispanic in, I think, Miami. I can't remember where. He said, I'm a natural Republican. I hate abortion. I love families. I, I love high military spending. I hate Castro. I voted Obama. <laughs> And he said, why? He said, because the Republicans don't want me here. <coughs> and that, that kind of way, the whole immigration, and in, in terms of what the Republicans will have to do, going back to the point that Craig made, one of the things they're clearly going to have to do is to deal with that particular image. Organization also made a huge difference. In the end, you don't win because you've got the best policies. You'll win because you've got the best organization. And one thing Obama has learnt on the ground is how to do proper organization on the ground. And it he won. learned it from the Republicans. And he learned it from the Republicans and he applied it even better. And in the swing states, he organized brilliantly well using the new media. Plus, if it had been about the election, uh, and only about the economy, if the election had only been about the economy, actually Obama should have lost. Because I don't think any single president over the last 20, 30 years has gone into an election with unemployment at, the, at that level, at about 7.5 to 8%, and won, and he won. So it had to be more than just about the economy and the way, and the way that was determined. Um, it was a very American election, of course, and anybody who's a non-American always feels that, in which foreign policy, and that's what I want to say a few words about, played a very, a very limited role. As I said in the, in the, last, in the last discussion, I, I said then, and I repeat now, foreign policy almost played a, a guest appearance. You know, here's the guest in the last debate. It isn't that important, but let's talk about Israel, um, which essentially what the, they mentioned 32 times, I think, in the, in, or 31 times in the, in, the, in, the third, in the third debate. But even when foreign policy was debated, it had a very domestic uh, context, it seems to me. Who was the loyalist of loyal to Israel? Therefore, who could get the Jewish-American vote in Florida? I think that was largely what that was about. Um, who could bash China best? In a way, I suppose, appealing to kind of white working class votes. Have you noticed, by the way, the working class in America is also called middle class? Everybody in America is middle class. And where are the other two groups at the top and the bottom? There's an interesting kind of sociological insight. They're there. upper middle class and lower middle class. Yeah, but you've got. Yeah, but everybody's talking to the middle class, and I don't think anybody in the end was. Um, and then the whole issue of military spending, I think, again, was really much playing to a domestic as it was to foreign policy. Why should this be so? I kind of pondered this quickly, just very, very rapidly, before, before reflecting on this evening. Uh, what this, the, the kind of crude answer is well, Americans aren't really that interested in the world. Uh, you know, a large percentage don't have uh, passports, very few travel outside of their own state or certainly outside the United States. Somebody once talked about the parochialism of all great powers and there's no more parochial great power than the United States of America. So who the hell wants to talk about the world? There's, some, there's something in that. It's something obviously too to do with the, the importance of the domestic and here we come back to the economy. And that the other argument, of course, is it wasn't talked much because there's not much disagreement about it. Um, something I don't entirely agree with, but you could actually argue that you only really debate those things you really have fundamental disagreement about. And on foreign policy, you might say that really the disagreement wasn't that much, and therefore you didn't debate it. 
Does it matter? And that's really the question I want to ask and, in a sense, Justin, uh, try and answer. I think it matters a great deal, for, and, and I, I, Gideon to pick up on some of these points. I think it matters hugely. Indeed, the next four years could be as much, if not more, about foreign policy than it just is likely to be about domestic politics. Um, this mismatch between the, the, the election and, and, and the next four years, it seems to me, is, is going to be enormous. Um, it's not just because America still has masses of power declining, though some people claim it to be. It is that I think Obama, broadly speaking, has had a relatively easy four years on the international front. Relatively easy. Relatively easy. He's been able, in, in a crude sense, to park a lot of problems. And I think the parking of some of those problems isn't going to be so easy over the next four years. Um, and on, four, on three large issues, I think a number of things are going to come towards him, which in a sense builds on the point that it's going to be a tougher <laughs> job, Justin. I do think it's going to be a tougher job. And here's three foreign policy reasons why. I'm not an economist, therefore I proclaim with great expertise on the economy. This is what you can now do at the LSE since 2008. Um, all the indications are the world economy is actually facing some really, really tough moments. Uh, whether it's a perfect storm with the U.S. stagnant and Euro crisis and China slowing down, India slowing down, all the BRICs not delivering on what the BRICs are supposed to deliver on, being the engine of the world economy, this looks very fragile. This looks extraordinarily fragile. Secondly, I think, uh, and I, I, this is not something I anticipate or hope, I think the relationship with China is going to get tougher. Uh, it, it's been problematic. But for the last 20-odd years, we've had a good partner in China, we being the West, the United States. I do think, for a set of reasons, maybe uh, would be picked up by the last... I think that relationship's just going to get tougher. It starts to get tough from here on in. For all sorts of reasons to do with China's rebalancing at home, the new leadership, the kind of problems in the South China Seas, I think all those things are going to get tougher. And finally, and last but by no means least, Iran. Iran has been postponed. The problem of Iran has been postponed. We're looking for sanctions to get our way out, sanctions to get our way out of this problem. I think there's a, a light at the end of the tunnel, but it's a train coming towards us. <laughs> and taking those three things together, it's inevitable that foreign policy is not much debated for all the reasons we know about, but I think the next four years could be once as much shaped by what happens in the outside world than what happens at home. Michael, thank you. Hands straight on to Gideon. Thanks very much, Justin. Yeah. Um, as Michael said, I mean, foreign policy wasn't a big issue in the debate. It was partly maybe because of parochialism, but also, I think, because the Republicans felt, well, this is one issue because of the killing of Osama bin Laden that Obama is fireproof on, and we're going to just have to concentrate on the economy. And that struck me as rather ironic, because actually, I think if you look at Obama's record over the last four years, he's largely failed in most of the foreign policy goals he set himself at the beginning of his presidency. And this has also been four years in which you've seen a decline in American influence in Europe, in Asia, and in the Middle East. Um, unless you write me <coughs> off as an embittered Romney supporter, I don't actually think this is because Obama's been a terrible foreign policy president or has made any particularly large errors. I think in a way it's more serious than that. What's happened is that America, I think in this past four years, has faced the consequences of three things. The first is... Uh, the consequence, the results of the financial crisis of 2008, which has turned it inwards, made it feel that it has fewer resources to deal with the rest of the world and also damaged American prestige. The second is the uh, consequences of the aftermath of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which has made the U.S. Uh, correctly much more reticent about the use of military force. 
And the third is what is known as the rise of the rest, the sense that the unipolar world that we briefly got used to between 91 to 2008 is coming to a close. And there are important other major powers on the rise, and therefore the U.S.'s freedom of action is necessarily less uh, is, is necessarily restricted. Just to briefly go through those three areas I mentioned, the Middle East. Now, it's interesting, the Obama administration, I think when it came in, correctly thought we've been spending, we as a country have been spending way too much time worrying about the Middle East. There are other parts of the world that matter far more. It's a correct perception. It's very hard to stop spending all your time thinking about the Middle East if you're in the State Department or the Pentagon, which was shown up in the, in, again in the foreign policy debate where 80% of the time was spent on the Middle East. Look at what uh, Obama attempted to do, though, when he came in. And it's, his record is not very encouraging. He wanted to make a big new effort on Israel-Palestine. He tried that in the first year, got pushed back by Netanyahu, and appears to have more or less abandoned that. He was keen to get the America, America out of Iraq. Well, they have done that, and uh, that is a success of a sort, and yet Iraq is now really in Iran's sphere of influence, which was not, I think, the original idea. Um, clearly, that's a failure more of George W. Bush than of Obama, but nonetheless, mm. it's, it speaks to this declining American influence. Then the other thing he wanted to do was to rehabilitate America in the eyes of the Muslim world. He made a couple of very high-profile speeches in Cairo and Istanbul, and yet, uh, you look now, and actually, a remarkable statistic, but true, apparently, uh, the U.S. is no, less, no more popular now in the Middle East than it was during George W. Bush's years. So there's been almost no impact there. The big event, of course, was the Arab Spring. And again, I don't think Obama made any particular big strategic errors. I don't think he could have handled Egypt very differently. And yet, with the fall of Mubarak, you have the move of, of Egypt, which was a kind of cornerstone of American strategy in the Middle East, out of a kind of American sphere of influence and into a more uncertain future. And then, of course, there's Syria, where the Americans, as everyone else is, is kind of looking on, standing on the sidelines, wringing our hands and wondering what to do about it. But the idea that the U.S. is able to somehow restore order in the Middle East, as we might have thought it was able to do 10, 15 years ago, I think that's gone. Europe... Um, now, that wasn't mentioned actually at all in the foreign policy <laughs> debate. Uh, and yet I, I, I know that both at the Treasury and the State Department, they spent a lot of time worrying about the euro crisis over the last year. And yet again, America's influence has been fairly limited. Essentially, what the Americans have been trying to do, to put it crudely, is to get the Germans to spend more money and to, to really uh, do, what's, do what they regard as necessary to pull Europe together. The Germans have not been terribly impressed by this, largely because the Americans are unable to put their own money on the table. Um, in stark contrast to you know, previous generations, for example, when America was able to sponsor the recreation of Europe after the Second World War through the Marshall Plan, because it was so much richer than Europe, it had a large checkbook that it could come in and use. That situation has changed now. And indeed, arguably, the Europeans listen more to the Chinese because they're hopeful that the Chinese can be persuaded to buy some Greek bonds if uh, they're in a good mood. Keep waiting. Um, finally, Asia. Very interesting, as Mick said. I, I think he's quite right that tensions between China and the U.S. are going to rise. Um, and there it's a more equivocal situation, partly because Chinese foreign policy has been very inept in the last couple of years, and they've managed to frighten all their neighbors who are now kind of rushing back into the arms of Uncle Sam and trying to tighten up their strategic alliances with the U.S. But I think the big picture is that Probably, you know, in the next 10 years, China's economy will become the largest in the world. 
It doesn't mean that at that point China becomes the most powerful country in the world, but there surely is a connection between economic wealth and size and, and political power. If you look at all the America's major allies in Asia, Japan, South Korea, Australia, India, for all of them, their major trading partner now is China. And that begins to exert a certain influence. And I think you're seeing China pushing a more assertive foreign policy, and America pushing back now through this so-called pivot to Asia, the attempt to rebuild alliances with Asian powers, and a, a rather dangerous situation arising. Indeed, we were all so preoccupied with the U.S. election that uh, we, I didn't I think anyone really noticed this delegation the Americans sent was it 10 days ago mm. to Beijing of four very senior ex a couple of ex-deputy Secretary of States and number two at the Pentagon, <coughs> to say to the Chinese, look, don't attack the Senkaku Islands because we regard them, which are these disputed islands, as covered by the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty. So that's essentially saying that America would go to war with China if it comes to blows uh, over these islands. So it's a very you know, dangerous situation, I think. I still believe they will be intelligent enough to avoid war, but nonetheless, it gives you a, a sense of how high tensions are rising. So... Uh, and I think the bigger picture is that that's because the unquestioned sort of American hegemony of the Pacific is now being questioned in this new era. So for, for all those reasons, I think we are seeing a, a decline in American influence, which isn't Obama's fault, but is something that he's going to, is going to define his second term, perhaps even more explicitly than it defined his first. Gideon, thank you very much. Uh, it was interesting that the special relationship didn't come up in that uh, foreign affairs debate either, did it? <laughs> there is, of course, a special relationship, as well, particularly if you talk... Like me, you go to somewhere, you know, get a Wichita or, I don't know, normal Illinois or somewhere, and you say, hello, I've just arrived from London. Could I uh, go to Starbucks say, can I have a cappuccino and a muffin, please? And, oh, my goodness, say that again. It's so gorgeous to hear you. Uh, I spent my, most of my eight years um, impersonating Hugh Grant. Uh, <laughs> not in every respect, I, I should make, 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 make clear. You were Hugh Grant. <laughs> Um, uh, okay, let's throw it open. I mean, let, let, can we start with the, um, what actually happened before we go on to, to other things? We've got quite a few questions that have, that have come in from Twitter and elsewhere about what happened, and then we could sort of widen it and also widen it to, uh, to, to people here. Um, my, several people have, have, have asked questions around this idea. Does the fact that the Republicans are back in the House and back in lean, mean strength um, mean that they will feel genuinely that they still don't have to compromise? Because, of course, they were offered a compromise on the fiscal cliff by Obama uh, last year. Do, do, will they still feel that they don't have to compromise? Or is there now a kind of sense although they won't admit it openly, that they know they lost? Well, firstly, they, they did hold on to uh, the House. They certainly lost in the Senate, and, and that's the other most important, uh, house, most important second House. So the very fact they, they, they lost in the Senate, I think, undercuts that argument in part. In part. Secondly, uh, Obama has won a second term. I mean, this is significant. I mean, he's not just a, 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 a one-term president. Therefore, winning that second term, and winning it reasonably handsomely, it was hardly a landslide, without doubt, but he won it reasonably handsomely, gives him a form of a mandate, it seems to me, which is not insignificant. But is it a mandate? So here's the point, Anne. Is it, is it a mandate that the Republicans will accept? Well, this, if, this, if, if this, you accept this, this is really a question one should ask more of Republicans and 
maybe of me. Well, I'm, I'm, well, I'm, no, 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 no. And the lapsed Republican, very, we could very, ask very, her. Very quick. I, I, I think the, the Republicans in the, first, in the first four years were in no mood to do anything which might help Obama. I think in the second term they would be shooting themselves seriously in the foot if they took exactly the same kind of negative stance and played the Molotov Niet, 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 niet line towards Obama. Because they've got to go through a rethinking if they're seen as purely obstructionist, particularly when we get to their so-called fiscal cliff. They could then find themselves where Obama could say, We've, <laughs> the economy's collapsed and it's their fault. Mm. And that, that would really be a political blow against themselves. So I'm not saying they're going to compromise, but I think they're going to be forced into a more accommodating position. That would be my view. I don't know about yours, Anne. Should I bang my shoe on the table so that I'm allowed to... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, no, yeah, it'd be very scary. Um, Republicans in the House, House elections are different from Senate elections and presidential elections. Um, House constituencies are much smaller, um, and because of... This is probably too complicated to go into, because of gerrymandering, because of the way constituencies have been drawn over the last 10 or 20 years. Um, there are many where really, you know, uh, you know, somebody's pet dog could win the Republican if he said he was a... How many, how many genuinely... How many genuinely... Um, how many are genuinely... Uh, winnable seats were there? The, the answer is something like 30 or 40 in the last election. Incredibly small. Incredibly small. But people who are clever inside the Republican Party do know that. Mm. Um, so they, they, they will be aware that, that you know, the fact that you can win at, at, a, at a midterm election doesn't mean, and, and that you can win with crazy people, that's important. Um, you know, you can't win, as turns out, you can't win a Senate election with crazy people. Yeah, they tried it, didn't they? House, yeah. But you can win a House election still with crazy people. So that's the difference. So what, what effect so, does so, that have so, politically so, now? So the, the interesting thing now is there is a, there's a, a fight going on inside the Republican Party, which is resulting in different statements being made almost every day about this. I mean, essentially, the strategy for the past two years after they won the House was, okay, we're going to take over and we're going to win the, we're going to win the White House by uh, opposing Obama at every level in every way. You know, we're going to make him an illegitimate president. Mm. Um, this strategy failed, and I think there's now acknowledgement that it failed. Um, will that mean that – and, I, and so somebody like John Boehner, who's the, who, who, who is the um, uh, leader of the House – um, somebody like that, I think, probably understands that that strategy failed, and he also understands the nature of the House. Whether he can bring along the crazy people in his party inside the House and convince them to do a grand bargain with the president is, I don't think we know yet. I mean, so the, so the answer is the leadership knows that uh, it doesn't have a mandate. Um, and the and and the and the the, um, the the broader thinking, farther thinking people inside the Republican Party, which is a really a coalition, understand that. Does the whole House understand that, and will they go along with it? I don't know, and I doubt it, but we'll see. Gideon, then Craig. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that one of the Republicans' dilemmas is that they, and you saw it with Romney, is that to win the nomination and possibly to win a, win a nomination to a, just a congressional seat, you have to appeal to a bunch of very angry people who want to hear that you're going to deport illegal immigrants and, and that kind of thing. And although Romney said, you know, it would be like, one of his advisors said, it would be like etch a sketch, you say all this right-wing stuff to win the uh, nomination. Actually, it turns out it's not so easy to wipe all that away. Somehow and, people remember. And oddly, I think, you know, Romney's remark, for example, that immigrants, uh, illegal immigrants, should self-deport, which he said... <laughs> In, during the, uh, during the uh, primary campaign did follow him into the general election campaign. So there's a real dilemma. To, to, to get to the top of the party, you've got to appeal to this 
you know, was characterized as old white males and who are a shrinking part of the electorate, but also a part of the electorate that feels threatened by the fact that this country is moving to become majority minority, as they call it, by 2040, 2045, and they're very unhappy about it. And to say to them, oh, well, you know, just accept it, guys, because this is the way it's going to be. I'm not sure you're going to get to the top of the Republican Look, I, I still, Craig, haven't heard the, an, an answer to the question, what will the Republican majority in the House do? Will they splinter? Will they fight as one against Obama, in which case they can really stymie him? What will they do? My best guess on this, and it's still a guess, is uh, that they will, in fact, wind up splitting with a faction that will get called moderate Republicans, but is really sort of practically-minded Republicans, emerging on certain issues, fiscal cliff and major foreign policy crises, and that they won't be prepared to be completely ideologically oppositional the way that they may be on Supreme Court nominees or other sorts of things on those two dimensions. Um, The last four years, many Republicans, I think the considerable majority of the the Republicans in House and Senate, thought there were electoral advantages to simply being anti-Obama. And I think that many of the far-right people who were elected at the previous midterm election and before had their own party's senior people running scared, so that many of the longer-serving Republicans felt they simply had to Um, follow the lead of those farther to their right, that they couldn't move towards the center without paying their own penalties, contested primaries, and other sorts of problems. Like Lugar lost his seat. And Lugar lost his seat, for example, a classic example. Um, And who is a conservative Republican, who's not, you know, somehow some sort of old throwback to John Lindsay liberal Republican, but not orthodox on the right. And so I think that won't work anymore to the same degree. Um, I think, though, that we need to recognize that lots of that so-called far-right group is moved by a real visceral hatred. They hate Obama. Um, They hate what's happening to the country. The majority-minority trend, they have a sense that they're losing the country that they feel they're a part of. And they are in particularly large um, groups in some parts of the country. So the other side of this red state, blue state, of why the popular vote was closer than the electoral colleges, there are big majorities in some states of people who are furiously, emotionally angry, get out of control angry at Obama and will vote very far right. So there will continue to be places in the country which will look much, much farther right. And there will be lots of state-specific action. You have states renewing um, antiquated abortion laws. You have states passing a variety of anti-immigration laws of their own. You have a variety of this. And some of this is very likely to continue um, as a fringe. And you have a relatively bad map for Democrats at the midterm election next time in 2014. That is as a result of gerrymandering and where the vacancies come up. The Democrats will face a challenging midterm election. So the far right of the Republican Party won't go away. The difference is that many of the people who are not on the far right will decide that they can't look completely obstructionist all the time. Uh, a reminder, if you're tweeting, hashtag LSEUS votes, uh, does anyone think the Tea Party is dead? No. No, no I, th- I think no. The, the very forces that brought them into being have, have not gone away. And I think... But you their know, candidates lost calamitously yeah, for the, the Senate. The Tea Party was not a new phenomenon. It was never I mean, really it, a it, it took either. some it took some um, new language over, you know, in in, yeah. in 2009 and 2010. But um, it's really in in many cases it's the same people who've been playing that kind of role in the Republican Party for for a 
decade or more. And beyond the Republican Party. It's not the just Republican the Republican Party. Party, and it is not a cohesive grouping with yeah. any national structure. No, and, and it's not just about cutting deficits. It's about all kinds of and, and, it, and it taps into a kind of a deeper vein of populism in America, which I think you've written about, Justin. It cuts into a deeper vein of belief that America is facing internal and external problems, and I think it cuts in very deeply on the issue. Well, no, nobody ever said it about race, yeah. even though that was never, the, sure. that's the word you cannot mention. I think underneath it, some of this hatred of Obama is sure. very clearly or at least implicitly about race. Can I just say something vaguely hopeful for the Republican Party? I, I, I mm. went to the convention... And they do actually have some very strong yeah. rising politicians. Yeah. Um, uh, the Chris Christie, who was mentioned earlier, actually fell flat, which for a man of his size is not something <laughs> one wants. But, uh, but Marco Rubio was fantastic yeah. on the yeah. last night yeah. and yeah. really yeah. overshadowed Romney. He was such a good speaker. Mm. Susanna Martinez, the governor of New Mexico, was pretty good. Condoleezza mm. Rice actually was surprisingly good. So, so, so following on from that, if they take, uh, I think it was, was it Michael's ad ad advice, and they address the issue of the 12 million illegals, mostly from Mexico, and they, they cauterize or inoculate, or whatever the right semi-medical uh, metaphor is, they, they deal with that somehow. They do a deal where they accept that they're not going to self-deport and they're not going to put them on buses and make them go. They are going to stay. If, they, if that issue is pushed away... To what extent, Gideon, do you think the Republican Party is then actually in a position to come back quite quickly? I would have thought it's got to be, it's, it's hugely important because the Hispanics are the fastest growing group in the country. States that were, you know, reliably Republican are now moving Democrat largely because the Hispanics have done so. New, New Mexico, Colorado... Mm -hmm. Um, California, which was Republican really solidly from the Second World War. But you think if that issue is yeah, addressed, and, 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 those, those votes yeah, can be won back? Yeah, they've got the people to address it, Rubio and, and Martinez. Yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and the Republican Spanish. Party has known this for a decade. Carl right. Rove knew it. George yeah, right. W. Bush knew it. George he liked knew Mexicans. The McCain comprehensive immigration reform was a Republican initiative, and mm. it, it, was, it was meant to deal with... There are all kinds of issues to, with immigration that are not just mm. to do with illegals. And it was meant to deal with that once and for all. And it was rejected by the rest of the party. And just, about, just about a very, very quick point. The demographics matter. The long-term sociological trends matter. But perceptions and policies matter yeah. just as much. <laughs> and clearly, if the, the perception of the Republicans was basically one that they basically didn't like ethnics, that's how they came across. And secondly, that they were against Mexicans, they were against Latinos, that came across. And the 47% use of language also implied that all, yeah. all Latinos were in that 47% category. A different leadership. I mean, the, the fundamental thing is power, power, power has an enormous, uh, it's a great aphrodisiac. And the one thing Republicans want isn't just to sit in the House with a bunch of congressmen. Uh, or just control the Senate, which I don't think I can do for a very long time. They want to sit at the heart of power, and that heart of power is the White House. It's the West Wing. But, and that, and that, that's going to have a big impact on the way they perceive it. But just Craig. changing immigration politics isn't going to be no, enough, no. because there is very little attraction for Latinos and Asians in the sort of visceral anti-state politics. Mm. The Republican so Party has run on cutting back 
a whole manner of state programs which are experienced as somehow taking by by many Republican mm. white men as taking money that they have justly earned and distributing it, distributing yeah. it to people who haven't morally earned it. Um, and so that plays very well with this declining pool of Republican support. It plays not at all with sure. Latino and Asian well, populations. Yeah, yeah. Simply destroying the state, simply cutting back state institutions mm. is a losing proposition. So they need to say what it is they will offer Hispanics and yeah. Asians. Um, and for that matter, mm. the large part of the American middle class, that is people who are mm. neither living mm. on inherited wealth nor living on welfare, um, but who want some kind of upward mobility. So if they can't be a party of upward mobility, then they're going to not be able to get Hispanic mm. votes. Final point on this subject to uh, two Americans, because you're both um, handsome people. Um, I want to ask you about Chris Christie. Is he too large to run, do you think? <laughs> no, but he's too I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a serious political <laughs> question. Too short. Yeah, yes, well, if he was 18 feet tall, it'd be no, fine. No, no, I'm yeah. serious. It's almost, I, I don't remember the it's statistic, amazing. but yeah. an unbelievably high percentage of elect presidential elections are yeah. won by the taller candidate. That's interesting. So it's actually his short stature rather than his girth. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, well, what do you think, right? <laughs> I think it doesn't Just help him it. to be large, but I think, and I think that um, height matters, but I actually don't think either of these is really <laughs> the decisive issue. Okay. Craig, Craig is over six feet tall. He's a pretty interesting political figure. Yeah. The problem is going to be that he won't get the Republican nomination, no. not that yeah. he wouldn't be a crossover candidate. Which is why he didn't run this time. He would be one of the Republicans most able to pull in <laughs> center-right Democrats, but he won't get the chance. And, and, working, and the working class. And the working class. Right. Yeah. In the second as well. The lower middle class. No, one of the new things in America is we actually use phrases like working class now. I mean, in the I last few years, inequality That's because you've all become socialists. Um, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to throw it open. How much have you been looking at? Oh, order, order, order. I'm going to throw it open. I blame you for all this. I'm going to throw it open now. And I mean, let's genuinely go in any. We, we, we don't have to be pernickety about whether we go to and from because this is all one subject in a way. There's someone right in the middle there, the most difficult place for the microphone to get. If you could wait for a microphone to come, not because we couldn't hear you if you shouted, but because then everyone else will be able to, to, to hear you. Here we go. Let's uh, make a stop. Hi. Um, I was wondering, from the perspective of the world with all the economic decline and all the bad rhetoric about immigrants, um, do you see people abroad uh, not having the sort of inexplicable desire to move to America come hell or high water in the future? Do you think that's going to ch start to change? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Michael? Well, very brief. I actually, the one thing I did disagree with Justin about is I, I, I did think, even if some of Obama's policies weren't the greatest in the world, I think he did two things. I think he did do a, a fairly good job on restoring U.S. standing, if not in the Middle East, which I think is almost impossible, then in other parts of the world. This is why most of the world preferred an Obama victory than, than, a, than the Republicans. I mean, the world voted for Obama massively, you know, even if, if they never had a vote. So I do think that does say something about the, the, the importance of soft power and Obama power, if you like, smart power, as he likes to call it. And I do, I do keep to the view that America still retains enormous soft power advantages. Yes, I do. Um, in spite of GW, in spite of all sorts of problems that have arisen over the last few years, in spite of some of the economic problems that have been talked about by people in the FT and elsewhere, I do think some of the soft power, the, the one great soft power it retains above everything else, or at least as, as much as anything else, is its universities. You know, if people are voting with their feet, then large parts of the elites around the world, including from the Chinese communist elite, are voting to go and study in the United States of America. That tells you something. Uh, get in there, Nan. Yeah, no, I mean, I, th I think that, that's, that's right. Uh, 
I mean, actually, oddly, Greece is full of illegal immigrants. There's always somewhere which, uh, you know, <laughs> which is richer than where you are. And America is still one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Of course, lots of yes. people want to move well, there. I mean, it's not only is it yeah, the wealthiest, it's going to remain the wealthiest, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, on a per capita per, per basis. Capita. I mean, that, yeah. that's the point. In, I mean, into the longer-term future. Even as China's economy becomes larger, yeah. I mean, the average Chinese will be much poorer. And it's quite interesting that uh, Mick mentioned the the children of the Chinese leaders, the one place where Xi Jinping's daughter and Bo Lai's son could meet is they're both graduate students at Harvard. Yeah, and, I, and I, I think the question also had the, the, the kind of shining city on the hill yeah. idea as yeah, well. Is, is, is that still there, do you think, Anne, in 10, yeah, 20, mean, 30 years? You have to be very careful, particularly when you're abroad, and I've found this as an American who's lived abroad for many years. You know, when you read about the United States for, in England or in Russia or anywhere, you, know, you, can, you can begin to get the impression that this is a suffering country mm. full of you know, the massed, you know, the huddled masses of poor people, you know, kind of Steinbeckian version. Then you go to Washington, D.C., or you yeah. go to Chicago, and gosh, everyone looks fairly well-fed. and they're, they're Too well-fed. Well Too well-fed. You, know, you know, the trains run on time, and the street lights are on, and, and there are lots of cars, and, you know, it's, it's all quite well-regulated. And so you have to be very careful. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the United States is... I, I would even, I'm not even sure that the relative decline is as much as some people mm. think, because I think some of the countries that have been rising are about to, are just about to hit a wall. Um, but, you know, in terms of, in terms of standard of living, in terms of, um, you know, freedom of speech, in terms of movement, in terms of, you know, how pleasant it is the to fun, live there. The fun index. Uh, it's, fun it's, index. you know, it's really hard yeah. to beat um, by comparison to other, most countries. Really. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't count, cross it off yet. Great weather and lots of space too. Let, let, let some, some, some great weather, not all great. Right. Sandy, yeah. Hello, I'd like to ask about Iran. Um, in terms of one thing that Obama has been clear about is he said more recently that there is a red line in terms of Iran getting a nuclear weapon. Uh, clearly there's the Israeli threat. And the other thing that isn't often talked about is the, the regional conflict between the Shias and the Sunnis and Saudi and, and other states, obviously Syria before but maybe not so much now. In terms of the title America and the world going forward over the next four years, given that it would appear um, that Iran is seeking to get a nuclear weapon. How does the panel, or what does the panel believe will be, if you like, the result in four years' time as a result of current developments? Craig. Hmm. I think that the end of uh, American hegemony is real. There's not an end to soft power. There's not an end to the attractiveness of the United States, as the previous discussion suggested. There's not an end to general wealth and leadership. There is an end to hegemony, to playing the world's sheriff in this, I suspect, and being able to do this successfully on multiple fronts. So I think it would be extremely hard for the U.S. to intervene in meaningful ways. The very search for more meaningful sanctions is an indication that you don't have anything serious to do, more um, that you don't have a plan. So I actually don't think that that's working. Um, I think if there's a military um, response, it's much more likely to be Israeli than American. Um, you may say that's proxy, but it's more likely to be organized in that fashion. The other thing is I think that the, the issue of the regional conflicts is big. And in several regions we have a, a series of these conflicts. So yes, in this region, Shia Sunni, but in Central Asia, in a variety of other places, we have 
regional structures that are very weak. So there's not um, a regional coalition that's effective in the Middle East for America to work through. Um, you can, you've seen that around the attempt to find one for Syria, which is admittedly an incredibly knotty problem. Um, so I think America is going to find it very hard to take effective action. Yeah, I, I would like to disagree respectfully with one aspect of that, which is that um, one of the effects of the Israel's talking up the possible war with Iran has been that for the first time, really I can almost remember, um, sanctions are starting to work in Iran. I mean, they've had a, a, the currency has collapsed. Yeah. Uh, there's a real economic crisis. And, uh, you know, there's even a, a kind of, it's not a conspiracy theory, but one explanation for Netanyahu's behavior during the election, which is otherwise inexplicable when he went to the United States effectively to campaign against Obama, was that the Israelis think that if they keep talking, sounding like they're about to drop the bomb, then that will keep sanctions, the pressure for sanctions on. Um, the other thing I would say about um, military activity is that I think if it could have been done, and if it could have been done successfully, and if people were sure it could be done successfully, then it would have been done already. So... Um, wh whether there really is a, a, a military option that people feel comfortable with, I, I question. Mark, do you then agree? Well, I, I kind of disagree with both previous speakers. <laughs> uh, it's a very bad idea to disagree with your boss, but I'm about to, so here we go. Um, I agree in broad... I, I th I mean, we can go into a longer debate about whether America's in relative decline, real decline, whether Paul, Paul Kennedy's right 25 years later after talking about American decline. The one area of hegemony, however, Craig, where America still has overwhelming preponderance is the military side. Yeah. And, I mean, oh, yeah. this is a country which spends nearly half the world's military expenditures on national security, which has 11 carrier fleets. Right. It's doing this for a certain reason. Now, if it were to take military action, what would be the consequences? We can certainly talk about that, and I think the consequences would be pretty horrendous both on the world economy, on the region, and in the end probably wouldn't stop Iran getting it. It might stop it for two to three years, and that might be just enough for some of those things. So I agree with you broadly on the Germany, but I'm not sure I agree with you on the military side. On the other thing, every single American president over the, what, the last, uh, since, since, since Bush through Obama and, and, and presidential hopeful in the shape of Romney have said there is a red line. So it's not, you know, and this has been talked about and it's been discussed and it's been repeated. If we get to that line, you cannot rule out, I'm sorry, I mean, I would like to rule it out, but I'm not sure you can rule out the possibility of military action, however it happens. In some senses, you could say the U.S. has become hostage to its own rhetoric about sure. that red line. I'm not sure that's impossible. I just don't think it's so impossible. Let's take three uh, qu questions. Reactive. In a, in a, um, preemptive. In a, preemptive is real. I'll, I'll come back on it around later. Okay, you can argue, argue with each other uh, later. At the front there, and then we'll go um, down here as well, yeah. Can we bring a microphone down to here as well, please? Thanks. Yeah, uh, you first, yeah. Right. Thank you. Um, does the panel think that the President and the Congress have the ability to steer away from the fiscal cliff, and <laughs> what are the implications for the rest of the world? Uh, potentially rather alarming. Yeah, fiscal cliff. Uh, person down here, yeah. It all depends on John Boehner. Yeah. We didn't hear very much from the panel on um, religion in the last election. It certainly was all over the press. And, um, can you hold the microphone slightly closer to your... And its ability to pull Romney to the right. Uh, I'd like to hear more about that. Okay, this is a question about religion. What, we, we didn't hear enough of it. And uh, right to the back, we'll go right to the back there and I'll come to you in the, in the middle in a second. So, on your left, on your left, on your left. No, 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 that's it. That's it, there she is, yeah. 
Thank you. Um, I was wondering that in context of um, all the taxation cuts slash increases that were being talked about and uh, the economic status, is one of the policy decisions possibly uh, cutting back on international spending in terms of, say, uh, funding towards the UN operations or towards uh, the World Bank, etc. Would that be a plausible policy uh, decision? Yeah, okay. So let's take that in the fiscal cliff, first of all. Anyone want to kick off with, um, with that? Who wants to jump over the cliff? I think we, we just, some of us answered, yeah. yeah. Just on, on, you know, foreign spending and so on. I mean, one of, one of the things that happens if they go over the fiscal cliff is they cut a trillion dollars uh, off the Pentagon budget over the next ten years, uh, which would have a significant impact on military spending. Americans apparently, according to polls, believe that huge amounts are spent on foreign aid, which actually they aren't. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm sure they'll cut foreign aid, but, but that will be a pretty marginal cut. But on, on this whole question of military power and, and the use of, I mean, Mick's absolutely right. Of course, America is massively powerful, more powerful than everyone else militarily. I think what they've discovered over the past 10 years, though, is that that's not as useful as they'd hoped. So you can knock over Saddam Hussein, you can knock over Afghanistan, and both countries, 10 years later, are not in the state that you want them to be. And that that really is is extremely sobering. So you've got all this power, but is it usable in a way that, that you want it to be? And... I think that's really one of the main reasons why Obama is so reluctant to take Mm, military action in Iran. And I think, just briefly on that, what's going to happen is that probably they're going to try some sort of direct talks, either in the open or through a back channel with Iran. If that fails, and it probably will fail, then in the next couple of years, Obama will have to face the choice between two forms of failure. One, war, which he's been trying to avoid very hard, or two, Iran gets a nuclear weapon. And uh, that's a very difficult choice. Fiscal cliff? Fall so, off? Not I'm fall so, off? No. I'll take no. religion. So you, We're not, you, I'll, you, I'll, you take religion. Cliff, yeah. So I want to claim everything. Craig, you deal with fiscal the, cliff. The uh, U.S. has enormous really military power. It's right. That doesn't mean that it can use it and get what it wants, which means proactive action is really in question right now. Um, but, you know, in the China case and all of this, I mean, the U.S. is vastly military militarily more powerful than China. This isn't even a close contest. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that war makes any sense for either side. The, um, the religion question has to be you know, seen. This, is, this election marked a decline in the power of the religious right, partly because of a split between Mormons and evangelical Christians, in which large parts of the religious right, while supporting Romney in opinion polls and in general, was not as motivated as it would have been had he not been Mormon. And that was a big issue. And this is a setback for what has been a growing broad coalition for a number of years, um, even between Protestants and Catholics now, but finding an area where a strong existing prejudice made it hard to go was a big issue. Yeah, I I would agree with that on religion. I would actually say I I was surprised by how little religion played in this election. I mean, it sometimes comes out as a proxy for other things. You know, there's arguments about abortion and so on, which are sort of about a religion and sort of aren't. But, you know, Romney's Mormonism was not the issue many people thought that it was going to be. Um, Obama's, you know, Muslimism... Um, Well-known. <laughs> ...was not, was not, was not mm. the issue. No, I'm, 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 I'm joking. But it was... Um, in fact, religion fractures still people in the United States as much as it, as it does unite them. I mean, Catholic vote is all over the place. Mm. Um, 
Jewish vote, uh, although d despite the Israel issue, the Jewish vote was mostly for Obama. So, you know, that takes, you know, a lot of the um, cliches about, you know, Jews voting for people who sound tough on, is on, uh, on Iran, that turned out not to be true. Um, you know, it, do it doesn't seem to me in, in the U.S. at the moment that people, with the exception maybe of this small group of people who are, I would say they're not even religious right, I'd say they're politically religious. Um, there's a group that, 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 um, that defines itself that way. I would say outside of that, it's very hard to say, say what it means. Just briefly, I mean, you can believe in God and be a liberal, and you can believe in God and vote Obama. Um, lots of people have voted Democrats for the last 40, 50 years and have believed in God in one form or another. So, you know, I think one's got to be a bit careful, certainly outside the United States, to think belief in God, religion equals conservative. You know, I mean, yeah. that is just, yeah. a, that's a false dichotomy. That's a false sure. way yeah. of thinking about the role of religion and the complex role that religion yeah. plays in the United States. And anyway, everybody in the United States, from a European perspective, seems to believe in God um, in one form or one shape or, or another. And I think Europeans just don't get religion, basically, if I might put it bluntly, when it comes to looking at the United British. States. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm half Irish, so I don't count. Um, <laughs> So my, my family name is McGrath, so I'm okay. So I do understand. I was born a good Catholic. Um, on the fiscal cliff issue, I, I, I'm bound to be a little bit optimistic on that, Justin. I, th I think it's the kind of manufactured crisis which will get them to the point where they will simply have to cut a deal. And on the military side, by the way, it, it would be a 20% real reduction in military spending if we go over the fiscal cliff. And for Republicans, that would be deeply repugnant. But does that, does that then allow on the fiscal cliff a deal that persuades the Republicans that there should be real tax rises, not fiddling about with the code. Peter has but said he would, yeah. he would allow it. Allow some. And that implies that he's looking for a deal. You do yeah. a bargain, exactly. Do a that bargain. he's looking for a kind yeah. of grand bargain. And then, as I yeah. said a little earlier, the question is then, can he bring the House <coughs> with him, or at yeah. least enough of the House to okay. pass it? And I think the kind of fiscal cliff, there's not going to be a major cut in support for the UN or international spending. It's too small a budget item, and part of what hegemony means is that you don't just rely on military power. Exactly. Yeah, and of course a lot of what America spends abroad comes from individual Americans. Going back to yeah, Michael's sure. point about religion, a lot of it religiously... Another in Southern Africa. Yeah, yeah. Um, sure. which is why it has the priorities out. Let's take another three questions, because that's in way. If you could go to the person right in the middle there. Thanks. And uh, yes, I promise you, so right at the back row there. And is there anyone? Yes, somebody, yes, the guy in the middle with the white shirt there. Who, uh, so let's start in the, on the left-hand side out there, or my left-hand side. To, to what extent has Obama not helped himself uh, by not endorsing Simpson-Bowles and by also his own personality? There's constant reference to him being aloof. Edward Luce even goes further and refers to his superciliousness. And twice last week, even in the FT, there was a reference to the number of golf matches that he played in his first term, 136, only one of which was with a Republican. Isn't it time that uh, he should take the advice of the Economist cover and uh, now hug a Republican? Yeah, uh, there was someone over there, yes. Yes, um, my question is on the views of... Can you hold uh, it very close to your mouth? Okay, sorry. My question is on the views of uh, Americans. I accept that the redistricting in the sort of House representation, uh, in the, the um, um, House of Representatives hurt the Democrats. But is, is it still not true that a plurality of votes in the House elections went to the Republicans and crazies like Rivera, who was corrupt, and West lost? So does that not mean that the American view is fiscally conservative and that either Obama has lost that 
or given whom he appointed to his administration, he wasn't even um, attempting to win the, the yeah. fiscal argument. Yeah, good, good question. Person in the white shirt, yeah. So we uh, spoke, or you spoke about America's universities being some of the best in the world. But when you look at the public schooling system in America, it's in a very bad state, uh, especially compared to some of its rich country peers around the world. Mm. Now, as we face this fiscal, fiscal cliff and you know, the deficit reduction plans, what's the likelihood of Republicans and Democrats working together to maybe increase what they call these budgets of tomorrow, which include things like education and infrastructure? Okay, got a rich array there. You don't have to answer all of it, everyone, but um, pick, pick what... I'll, what uh, I'll go out on a limb and say there is an enormous majority of Americans who could be won to a ticket that was fiscally conservative and socially liberal. Yeah. Um, and we haven't really had that ticket yet, or not recently. Not is that why The Economist sells so well in... Uh... It, it's, uh, there was a very funny. Um, the Economist sells so when the Economist endorsed Obama, there was somebody tweeted, "Yes, and will the Achella Quiet Car class be the next group to endorse?" I mean, there's just, there's a class of people who buy the Economist. I'm not sure they're they're, but no, I, I think actually, I think fiscal conservatism, social liberalism, is a is a could be a mass vote winner, not just Economist readers. Uh, Craig. Okay, um, on the, I think the plurality of House votes to Republicans isn't an indicator of fiscally conservative or anything else. It's big red state majorities. <laughs> it's not a, as in much of a national pattern as it is a pattern of very large majorities. The reason it comes out as a plurality when um, it's so close to the numbers um, is such a large plurality. The, um, that's a fluky thing. But the U.S. is fiscally conservative. I think that Anne's absolutely right on this. That would be the central... Um, ticket. I think public school funding is overwhelmingly a state and local issue in which the federal government has a very marginal role, um, and it's not likely to make any new steps to increase that role now, but then it hasn't for a long time, um, since no child left behind. The, um, and I think that um, there's no massive sign of a change at the state and local level in funding for public schools. Um, you know, there are places that are getting better and places that are getting worse, but it's, it's not like uneven. this is overwhelming. It's very uneven. California has sunk to the bottom, uh, and it used to be near the top. There's some improvement in some places. You know, it's complicated. The, I think on the issue of um, demeanor and impression, that being cool and calm and analytic and technocratic play very differently for a black man because they violate racial stereotypes. And so um, a number of things that, that seem uh, appealing characteristics, I think, to Barack Obama about himself don't appeal to one segment of American voters that those people are angry at him because um, of who he is um, bearing that demeanor. Uh, Gideon. It just briefly, um, since the Economist endorsement was mentioned, I was, as a former employee, I was there the evening they just they were about to decide, and one of the few really genuinely right-wing people on the staff, the rest is mostly opposed, uh, said to me, you know, if we endorse the community organizer over the venture capitalists, we might as well close down and reopen as the Guardian Weekly. <laughs> but uh, but uh, that's what they did. Yeah, Adrian. Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, 
Yeah, uh, and uh, I mean, I, I think the whole question of investments in the future that was mentioned is incredibly important because obviously the part of the budgets that's discretionary, that's education, that's transport, is the bit that's most easily squeezed, you know, if you're going to protect entitlements and Medicare and Medicaid. And the fear must be that American infrastructure, already not in a great state, is actually what's squeezed. And I, I do worry, I mean, anecdotally about what's going to happen to the American university system at a time when college fees look more and more unaffordable. Uh, you know, these colleges require people to pay enormous amounts of money. I was, met an American friend who was looking very sort of distressed at the Republican convention. I said, you know, what's wrong? And he said, my daughter's just got into Notre Dame. And, uh, <laughs> and that's going to be, you know, she'll be there for four years. It's over $50,000 a year. That's $200,000. And I've got five kids. She's the first oh one. God, yeah. so that's over a million dollars. It's probably quite a common tax. problem at Notre Dame, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. uh, Michael. Yeah. Just, 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 yeah. <laughs> just on Obama and his personality. I like Obama's personality. He doesn't emote. Hmm. You know, I kind of rather like that. I mean, he also thinks. There's a, it's remarkable. You know, he took, he took three months before he deployed more troops in Afghanistan. Duh. I mean, you know, he takes advice from many well, sources. Well, yeah. Yeah, I'm, 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 this is actually one of the reasons, I think, that actually he reassures people. Um, there's, there's not but, a lot of adventure. But not all people. Well, he, he, right. re, he reassured me and that you. Issue, and that issue me, about you know. his being aloof isn't is the other. Group I know, but I do, I do I do think the thoughtful side of his of that character yeah. is, is something sure. which I do I do think plays well. It certainly plays well outside the United States. On the, on the on the fiscal side, which is of course important for the election. On the fiscal being fiscally conservative and liberal, who was the most successful president since the end of the Cold War? Clinton. Clinton won two terms. He was fiscally conservative and he was socially liberal. He would have won a third term if he, if he could have... And that may be the model if somebody wants to win another election. And I know you agree with that, Anne. I agree with that, and I wish that the Republicans knew that. Yeah. Just on the subject of, of, of Obama's uh, aloofness, Jody Cantor, the New York Times correspondent, who I think spoke at, uh, at the school quite, quite recently. She wrote a book about the Obama White House, and one of the things she identified... And this is a slightly more serious point than the aloof, not aloof argument, is that one of the things he failed to do, particularly in the first couple of years of his presidency, was use the levers of power that are on hand. You think of Lyndon Johnson and those yeah. photos of him using his physical... Well, well, you know, the, the modern equivalent of that is the phone. And what Obama, and, and I thought it was the most shocking thing about the book that Jodie Cantor wrote, a lot of people fixated on Michelle and her influence behind the scenes, etc. But actually the most interesting thing I thought was that in the evening, his aides would bring him a list of congressmen, you know, minor people, headbangers, to be rung personally by the president. And he'd just say, no, I can't be bothered. You do it. He got his staff to make his phone calls. And actually that, I think, politically sure. in the American yeah, context was, a, was, and, was quite and, a, a and just, just damaging thing. That brings back Clinton. Who would, who who would, would never have, have done that? Who would have yeah. done it even before his age yeah. passed? Yeah. He, yeah. He, he, yeah. It, it sure. also, you know, when you talk about partisanship in America, it's not just Republican partisanship. And right. the, this, this White House has been mm. terrible at reaching yeah. out to the other side. Oh, I mean, but it's also true that this White House didn't reach out to its own core electorate very much. So Obama ran as a sort of movement activist in 2008 mm. and governed as a technocrat, yeah. not a politician, and therefore not reaching out to the Republicans, but also <clears> abandoning much of his own speech-making, movement-mobilizing um, side, in, partly in the pursuit of bipartisan appeal, um, but 
yeah. uh, for whatever reason, I think, a loss. Um, another three questions. Yeah, uh, one there in the sort of towards the middle. Yep, and then we'll come to the back, and then we'll go up again. If you could bring your microphone over to there, please. Yeah. Uh, Hello, thank you. Yeah. You touched on it briefly in terms of Iran, but how do you think the relationship between the U.S. and Israel will define Obama's second term and future presidential elections? Yep, and there was, where else did I go? Who else has got the microphone down there? Yeah. yeah, so I was wondering um, what role do you think that the Libertarian Party and Green Party could play in the next election, especially given that you know, some people are not happy with the Republican Party nor with the Democrat Party? Yep, and then uh, maybe over in the corner there, yes. There's someone with a hand up that is going to be quite difficult for you to get to, but have a go. How's that? Well, well, we'll come back to you in a second. <laughs> Sorry, it's not going to get to you. Okay, shoot. Hello. Um, I was just wondering what, if, what you thought about um, the addition of Puerto Rico as a new state in the U.S. Um, what were the implications for the U.S.B. and for the political parties? Yeah, Thank okay. You. Great, thanks. Um, and again, any of those? Puerto Rico, libertarians, Israel. That's... Um, uh, there's, there's a joke, isn't there, that involves yeah, all three, but I can't quite yeah. remember the punchline. What well, yeah, what's the, what's the punchline? <laughs> Uh, U.S.-Israel, I, I mean, I just think this is such a... Fundamentally, the differences between Obama and Romney, between the Republicans and Democrats on Israel, is a slither. I mean, there's, you can't put a, a lot of deep blue sea between two parties. I mean, Obama tried a little bit to talk more about Palestinian rights, which he did. He criticised the Netanyahu government. I, I think the United States, for all sorts of historic reasons, rightly or wrongly, is locked into a certain kind of relationship with Israel, which is, and whichever government is in power in Israel, which is going to be very difficult to move outside of that. I think there's a, a kind of entrapment on that question, for good or ill, for good or ill, and I don't see very much movement. On the, on the question of third parties, I mean, third parties in the United States are really excluded by the electoral system, and until you, and when you change the electoral system, move to a more PR system, it, third parties of any form are going to be very, very different. It's never, it's never really going to happen. It's not ever going to happen. It's never going to happen. So based on, I, that's what I was about to say. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, what I think, therefore, it, it, it's left up there for, to third parties to make a tactical choice. You either work into one of the two parties and become a pressure group within that party, or you stand outside and effectively are politically... Irrelevant. On Puerto Rico, I'll pass that over to other people who know more about it. Anne, Anne, what do you know about Puerto Rico? I've been there. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really, I loved Puerto Rico, actually, when I went there. Um, it's not a, it's not a um, I, I don't think that this election had any influence on policy towards Puerto Rico. As I understand the Puerto Rican issue, it mostly depends on Puerto Ricans. I think if they really wanted statehood, they could probably have well, it. Who? Who or voted for state of the state? That, that's the, the motivation of the question, I take right. it, is the vote in Puerto Rico. Yeah. Oh, that I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 would turn to, I, didn't, I actually didn't hear the question very well, so I'm sorry. I, I thought the question was to do with attitudes towards it. Um, U.S.-Israel, I would actually largely agree with you. There's not that much difference. The only thing I would say about it is um, that it's going to be interesting to see how the Netanyahu's intervention in the election plays mm -hmm. and whether that makes any difference. In the end, I, you know, I don't know how angry Obama was about it or whether he was somehow complicit in it and knew it was going to happen in advance. And I, 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 I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. Get in. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a complicated question. That there's this assumption that it's, it's incredibly dangerous for any American presidential candidate to do anything 
that's anti-Israel. But as Anne pointed out, 70% of them vote Democrat anyway, more or less, regardless, even though it's true that Obama is regarded with suspicion in Israel. Um, I suspect that having made his early effort on Israel-Palestine, actually if he has any sense, he'll probably leave it alone because it's the kind of issue which once you get involved in it, consumes your entire presidency. You end up locked up in Camp David for months with these impossible people who then all renege on the deal anyway. So, uh, <laughs> so I think he will pro- he, ideally he would just like it to all go quiet, but there's always a danger that either you'll get a, a, another, a third intifada, which would then suck him back in, or the Iranian issue. If the Israelis say, okay, we're going to bomb, what does he do? Um, I think he may yet be saved by the fact that Netanyahu actually doesn't necessarily command the support of the entire Israeli establishment, although he's sought to get that impression. So he may be stopped within Israel. But if he isn't, I suspect that they will authorize, they will in the end go along with some Israeli strike, and then... We'll see. Okay. So, uh, wait, let me just add something on Puerto Rico. Quickly. Yep, do, and let, if the microphone the, could go the, to the person the at the back with the tie on, looking rather smart. ages to come for Puerto Rican statehood. I think that the odds are still against it, but the coincidence of the potential sort of splash success legacy that it could offer to the Obama administration with the fact that largely for reasons of dissatisfaction with the status quo inside Puerto Rico, there's been this vote. Um, creates a a window of at least some level of opportunity, as improbable as it may be. Okay, uh, yes, gentlemen, then then we'll take another couple of Could the panel please give their thoughts on uh, Paul Ryan and what role will he play over the next four years on two fronts within the Republican Party and also broader American politics? Thank you. That's that's a good one. Uh, Anyone over in this corner? Yes, go go over there, and then we'll come down to uh, the end here, and then we'll go into the middle. Yeah. So... Yes, actually, if you can go, because the microphone's still getting to him. Yeah. Uh, did, the, did the powerful political lobbies in the United States have an impact on uh, the outcome of the elections? Huh. And that's not that. In just a week, uh, Obama's going to be going to Burma for the first time in, in decades. And... Um, Arguably, it's part of this big pivot to Asia, um, which is, some have said, is sort of the biggest real foreign policy shift um, that's actually a a change from the Bush policies before that. Um, And what what do we see as in the future? What does the future hold for that shift in the next four years? Again, any... uh any or all, but if it's going to be all, you have to be brief. Uh, quick, yeah, Michael. Quick, quick one on Paul Ryan. Spend less time in the gym, more time in the library. Mm. Uh, I can say no more. Mm. Um, on lobbies, well, in some senses, everybody part of a lobby in the United States. I mean, I don't believe... I mean, there's kind of an argument about the Jewish lobby. I think it's massively overdone. And sometimes it lies into forms of anti-Semitism. Everything is a lobby in the United States. The trade unions are a lobby. The military are a lobby. The, you know, agricultural workers are a lobby. Everybody's a lobby, and everybody plays a lobbying game in the United States. Anybody who studied Congress, particularly Congress, you know how lobbies play. Did it actually, in the end, determine the final outcome of the election? I actually rather like to think no. That actually was determined by a whole bunch of other things, the demographics and the policies and the personalities, rather than by some hidden lobbies. Uh, maybe I'm a bit naive, but that's the way I think. On Burma, on, on the Asia, I think on balance, Obama is. It, this wasn't your question, but I'll, I'll answer my own point. I think he's right. I think he is right. I think it's a. I think it's a very. It's a good move to go as early as possible. Uh, the realities are that over the last few years, the big influential player in Burma, or Myanmar, as some would prefer to call it, I don't, uh, has been China. 
China has been building up its economic links, its relationships, and the sooner the United States or the West more generally, I'd like to see the EU taking also, and as indeed it is in some areas, uh, to take a, a very proactive line uh, within Burma, and not purely just for econo economic reasons or strategic ones, but also to reinforce the, the processes of democratization there. Yeah. Just on, on Burma, I mean, I think that there's both a kind of uh, a, a domestic, political, and a strategic thing going on there. I, I think that you're right that Burma, when it was solidly authoritarian, was clearly in the Chinese camp, becoming part of a sort of Chinese sphere of influence, and therefore it's uh, in America's interest if they're trying to build up their own network in Asia for him to, to get there fairly fast. Uh, Aung San Suu Kyi is clearly, a, you know, the Mandela of her age, and everybody wants to be photographed with her, so that's exactly. helpful. And also, I think that in the back of Obama's mind, or certainly the people around him, there's a lingering embarrassment about the failure to embrace the Green Revolution in Iran, and a sense that, you know, well, maybe this is a chance to make recompense to get on the right side of human rights in a sort of easy mm. way. Uh, so I think for all those reasons, he's going. Anyone else with an answer on Paul Ryan? I would be careful about dismissing Paul Ryan. He's extremely popular and well-liked um, among Democrats as well as Republicans, I mean, as a, as a, as a, as a person. Um, and while it's probably clear he's a little rough around the edges, um, he's, he's now going to be seen, he is going to be the one fighting Chris Christie and Mark Rubio for the leadership of the Republican Party. So I would, I would But he also came out of this labeled as an extremist in a way that frightened a lot of people. Yeah, yeah but he may be able to, to walk back from some of that. We'll, Last, we'll see. He, he, he's, he, and the, some of the ideas that he stands for are still Yeah, he was quite, not popular. too bad in the debates. He's got quite a, good, he, yeah. he's got quite a disarming manner. Yeah. Which yeah. He's, okay. he's not offensive. We like Ryan. He's on the up. Uh, bye, Ryan. Um, we'll take yeah. three more. Yes. Uh, yeah, the one thing I uh, wanted to ask, uh, something that I was so disappointed didn't really come up, although not too surprised, was uh, America's role in sub-Saharan Africa, and the, um, especially as a way to sort of a butt uh, China's rise on a definitely uh, ascending region. So do you expect um, uh, the next Obama administration to engage more with the African Tigers in the next four years, yep. or do, is it going to remain status quo? Okay, lady right at the front there in the pink, on the front row at the, at the top. No, hi. Um, I just wanted to ask a question. Um, uh, Professor Applebaum said something about feeling uh, not happy being politically right anymore and um, my general sense of the world is that we've all gone much more towards the right very slowly because of the money and the banks and I was just wondering whether um, any of you felt that the advent of the Occupy movement had anything to do with um, what happened in the US hmm. um, yep, that's a good, a good, good, good. if I can stop you then we'll get one more yeah person at the front of the, of the Shoot. Uh, thank you very much. As a U.S. voter, I was very uh, disappointed with the role that money played up, up until the election. Um, we saw these rise of super PACs spending millions um, of dollars, and that wasn't mentioned at all. Um, and I, I'm not so sure that this actually played a role as much as people were saying that it would play a role. Yeah. Um, uh, can you speak on that? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, just on the super PACs, first of all, what struck me when I was in the States shortly before the election is that the, the result is a mess for your candidate because you, the, obviously the candidate can't have any control, there can't be any contacts. So you have this kind of range of messages 
more or less crazily spewed out on the airways. I, I wonder whether you know, all that SuperPAC money actually was, was well spent, Anne. Yeah, I think the, the, the conclusion of many people already in the last few days, there's massive disappointment among people who spent huge amounts of money on this election. because <laughs> Sheldon Adelson particularly. It, 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 it turns out that voters are somehow immune to some of this. I mean, if you have that much advertising, and there was a very funny article um, about people in Ohio you know, who don't pick up their phones anymore in the evening. This is <laughs> the week before the election. Keep their televisions off you know, because they're so sick of it. I mean, you, you do build up resistance, and people stop believing it, and you, it loses some credibility. And so at a certain point, you know, if you keep spending money, it doesn't have any effect. So I, I, in, in a way, it had less effect than, um, than, than, than we thought. Um, the Occupy movement is a complicated question because, yes, I think it's true that... Um, you know, this issue of, you know, have we been too, uh, too generous to and too um, indulgent of the banks and of the financial markets and so on, I think that that is, has become important in American politics and maybe that was partly because of the Occupy movement and I think this 1% slogan was a very brilliant one um, and I think it, was, it probably hurt Romney because he's clearly in the 1%. Um, the problem with the Occupy movement is that it didn't present an alternative and it didn't create any policies and therefore I'm not sure it has had any long-term effect on the Democratic Party in the way the Tea Party has had an effect. You know, the Tea Party immediately became part of the Republican umbrella, began to try to win uh, elections. You don't see, the, there's no trace now of the Occupy movement. I mean, it, 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 it hmm. disbanded for the most yeah. part. There are few exceptions Craig. inside the party. Yeah, I think the Occupy movement does not in and of itself have the kind of roots and staying power the Tea Party had. That's exactly right. I think the issue of inequality however, has come onto American politics in a more central stage way than it has had in a long, long time. And so the Occupy movement had an effect, even though it is now history and was ephemeral, um, on putting that issue centrally forward. I think in Africa, um, there's, I don't expect, I expect trips and I expect some level of engagement, but I think the best news coming out of Africa is that, that the level of development that is going on is largely an African story, not dependent entirely on outside aid. And this is actually a good thing. Um, It's an investment story. It's a local um, change in government structures and and, um, in economic incentives. Um, And I think the thing about money, Anne's right, it's a huge cost that went into this. Essentially didn't matter in swaying the elections very much. Um, But it does have an effect of distorting seeking money distorts the elections. It's not just the spending of money that potentially distorts elections, it's that candidates and campaigns are dependent on raising money in this way that as part of the distortion. That goes back to the point about lobbies, doesn't it, Anne? That that, that gives these people power because of the money that the candidates need to raise from them. Yeah, very quickly, on on money, I I think there was a a neutralization. There's so much money there that they simply neutralized each other and everybody got so fed up. The one thing, the the, the really deleterious consequence, of course, it excludes other voices. It simply excludes other voices from it. Because if, you, if you're not a multimillionaire and you're not with all the vast amounts, simply so many other voices are out there in the United States which are not being channeled into the, into the discussion within the two major parties. And I think that's the really harmful effect. Gideon, um, yeah, final word. Just a, a sentence on, on, on money. I mean, it just seems to me that it's so draining for the candidates how much time they have to spend raising money. It's that that yeah. and sort of flying around is, is really all they do. And uh, on Africa, I mean, I think that one good thing for, for, for Africa is that, unlike in the Cold War, it's not actually, although China's a presence, it's not become a focus for geopolitical competition yet. Mm-hmm. It's really a business competition, and 
At the moment, the stock of investment and trade is actually still mainly with the West, but China's growing very, very fast, mm. partly because their search for natural resources, also because they're quite good at doing business <coughs> in places that are bases for low-cost manufacture and so on. I wonder whether America might actually, if anything, in a business sense, lose a bit of interest in Africa because they were looking to it for LNG and for liquid natural gas and for oil. Uh, but now that America's going through this energy revolution, which actually we haven't discussed... Yeah, we haven't, we should really have done. Shape the next we'll all come year. back tomorrow and uh, do the yeah, same thing. Uh, um, we've, we've got to leave it there. One interesting fact about, um, which you may already know, but for anyone who doesn't, it was tweeted in the middle of the night during the election. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, every winning Republican ticket since 1928 has had either a Nixon or a Bush on the ticket. <laughs> wow. With that thought, oh. a round of applause, please, for the questioners and the panel. Thank you. Thank you very much, everyone.